You're listening to the Apple Insider Podcast. Start recording as well. She'll do a clap so you can synchronize it later. Are we ready? Yes. Welcome to this segment of the Apple Insider Podcast. I'm Victor, and joining me is Vlad Savov from The Verge. Hello. Welcome. Thank you. I'm really glad you're here. Thank you for joining me. So, so can you tell our, our listeners a little bit about why you're here today? Well, this was a really impromptu idea that I just came up with on the fly. I'm testing a bunch of podcasting gear, uh, which includes a bunch of microphones and some input equipment. Uh, and I tweeted that this would be the week, if anybody wants to have me on the podcast, to get me on. And you're one of the first people to respond. And you get the pleasure of listening to me with the Apogee Hype mic, which is a tiny little microphone. It's actually designed to be used connected to your phone, whether it's iPhone or Android. And I'm really impressed with it. It has a little pop filter. It has a tiny little package. It's super portable. Um, and just in a couple of quick comparisons against much larger XLR microphones and much more professional equipment, uh, I'm impressed with it. And hopefully this podcast will speak to the quality of that microphone. So if you're hearing the audio differences, go ahead and tell us know your thoughts about which microphone you like better or what you like about what you hear. Uh, I am using an old Electrovice dynamic microphone. It's an XLR mic, and I've got it running through an, an old Sentrance MicPort Pro uh, USB adapter. They don't even make those anymore, but I like its sound better than I like the uh, IK Multimedia uh, mic pro that I've got over here. Whereas for me, it's literally just a USB-C cable jacked into my MacBook Pro. Vlad, you wrote an article talking about the iPhone's camera. And I, I think this is going to be a somewhat controversial article for our listeners. But what what was your what was the main uh, theme of that article? Uh, well, the article is titled, The iPhone's Camera Used to Be a Selling Point, which I confess is a bit inflammatory, I'm sure. But my hope is also to bring people on board once we have a discussion about it, because my perspective on Apple and the iPhone and his camera is one of somebody who's always appreciated those aspects, especially the camera. I mean, in the article, I mentioned that four years ago, I wrote this piece where I had gone to CES in January. I was using, uh, I believe it was an LG G2 at the time, an underrated smartphone. But I saw people taking photos with the iPhones and it was so effortless. And the photos that they were taking was just better than mine. And I just grew really envious of them. And at the time, I realized that the iPhone was the best camera because it was the best combination of ease of use and quality of photos. So you couldn't get photos of that quality with that ease with any other camera, not even professional cameras. It was it was just the combination of usability and quality that Apple had, which was untouched. And for a long time, it remained that way. It was that way at least since the iPhone 4, so as far as I'm concerned. And it lasted until the iPhone 6, iPhone 7-ish, and then the Google Pixel arrived and it changed everything. You know, And I'm just talking about stills photography here. Right. Uh, and I fully admit that in terms of video, the iPhone is still one of the leading smartphones. So what we tend to see are, are ratings like the DxO Mark ratings. Which are terrible. Thank you. So, you know, every year they come out and, and it seems like it's just a reshuffling of the top three spots. This year it's iPhone. Oh, it's the next one. It's Pixel. And it's really hard as a as a reader of those kinds of things to make head or tails of them. So why are those things terrible? Well, there's two things to say here. Um, and I'm a bit, I guess I'm a bit biased in saying this, but first of all, you want to be listening to reviewers rather than 
synthetic benchmarks. It's too complicated photography. You know, there's white balance. There's also uh, focusing speed. There's um, exposure. Is it judging the exposure correctly automatically or is it doing the exposure correctly once you make that setting yourself, once you make that tweak? So when I just talked about how the iPhone was the leader in usability, all of those things are not picked up by a benchmark. So I hate when people do things like, for example, hey, here's a blind test. Tell us which one of these photos you prefer. Because that takes out the entire experience of shooting with that camera out of it. And I don't think you can do that. I think that's super important, especially for consumer cameras, where the ease of use is not as important as image quality, but it's really very important. As with DxO itself, I think... Um, Listen, it never tells you that a terrible camera is great. It never tells you that a great camera is terrible. Uh, but it's because of its modes of testing and because of the things that it prioritizes, um, it doesn't really correlate with good photography. So a good example to me is the Google Pixel. I've just been comparing the Google Pixel against the Huawei P30 Pro camera. Um, and the P30 Pro camera is actually the thing prompting me to write about the iPhone's camera because as far as I'm concerned now, both the P30 Pro and the Google Pixel are significantly, uh, detectably, noticeably, substantially uh, ahead of the iPhone to the degree where you can't just accuse me of being an Android fanboy because I'm not, right? I've used iPhones and Androids uh, for the past decade while doing my job as a tech reviewer. And um, so the Pixel compared to the P30 Pro, the Pixel generates more noise and DxL Mark hates that. But the Pixel also picks up more detail in the photos and it looks more photographic. So the flaws in a Pixel photo are like the flaws you would have gotten out of a film camera in previous years. It's kind of like if you took your DSLR today and you cranked up the ISO a little too high, you'd get the same sort of grain and noise that you get in a Pixel photo. With the Huawei phone, Huawei is one of those companies that decides we really, really hate grain, so we're going to do noise reducing blur and we're going to flatten out things to get rid of the grain but as i say you flatten it out you lose detail so right so that's that's basically what it comes down to is that there are judgment calls made by the the designers and engineers working on these products where they say we dislike grain or we want something that's more photographic or we're willing to accept grain in order to get the detail that would otherwise be lost correct it's, it's comes down to their values about what is a photo, right? Yeah. My issue with DxO Mark is they favor getting rid of the grain. Like they overvalue the matter of graininess in a photo. And essentially, if you give them an oil painting, they'll probably give you a hundred out of a hundred, even though their ranking is now beyond a hundred. So I just have an issue with whatever calculation um, and whatever formula they have. I, I don't think it correlates with like you say, the photographic quality that you get out of all the cameras that I've tested. And I'm not alone in this. Uh, most of the people who do this for a living um, also also feel like it underrates the photographic quality of things uh, for the sake of... Uh, and even, even the aesthetic quality of things for the sake of something that's more numerical in terms of measurement. I mean, at the end of the day, the, the photograph exists for the people that are viewing it, right? Yeah, the, yeah. the the taking of the photograph, the experience of using the camera app is a very limited point in time that we just happen to do an awful lot of. But viewing the photograph, you know, if it's a good photo, is something that you spend time with reviewing or sharing or, or posting places, right? Is it? That's actually, that's actually a good question. Is it? Because I find with a lot of the photos that I take, even though when, even when I'm trying to be restrained... 
I spent more time taking them and tweaking them after taking them than I actually spent going back to looking at them. You know, it's I, I think it's one of the things that changed a lot when digital photography came into to being more of a mature thing, right? We, we used to be a little more conservative about how much we'd shoot because there was a very real cost to buying film and developing it and processing and all that and printing. And and digital frees you to take as much as you've got storage for. Yep. And so we we review them less. We we you know we don't have photo albums in the same way that you used to, right? It used to be you'd have family photo albums and you'd have these binders full of photographs, and I don't think that really exists anymore. Well, Google and I think some other companies have tried to revive that by selling you photo books of your Google Photos. Uh, but you're, you're right. I, I can pinpoint the last time I bought one of those. <laughs> and it is, it's been a couple of months, and it was only because my daughter said, I've taken a bunch of pictures of stuff, and I want to print a book. Okay, you can do that. But we have not printed out a book of family photos in 10 years. I, I, I can probably say the same thing. I have no idea when we've done that. I know, uh, for example, I also cover car shows, and sometimes they give you these beautiful photo books of the latest car. Right. And they print it on thick paper and it's just gorgeous. And you just have, you know, basically coffee book tables. I have those and I've never opened them. And this is part of the whole digital lifestyle thing. I mean, I feel like somebody's suffering from a disease because things that happen on your phone are always so demanding for your attention. You know, I open my gmail and i'll be like i need to drag up this piece of information to get this task done and then it'll be a new email and then i'll respond to it and then i'll just be lost um and it's the same thing with like twitter notifications and so on and so on and so on everything is there, there is a never-ending avalanche of notifications telling us we've got something new to read or consume right so right? and i'm not even getting to the point of boredom it's just I don't get to the point of not having anything to do where I can be like, oh, well, let me peruse this book of pretty photos. I just don't have the time anymore. And I can say it's a aspect of my job, perhaps, but I also feel like it's a wider societal thing. You know, I think there's something to that. Now, this sort of dovetails into the other thing we were talking about before we started recording, where so years ago, a couple of years ago, Apple patented a pizza box. You remember that? Yes. They have so many of those, but yes, I remember it happened. Right. So they, they weren't actually selling it as a product, but they patented a pizza box that is a circular pizza box with, with uh, ridges and to give it structure and, and vents to give it uh, to allow the heat to escape a little bit. And so you wouldn't end up with a steamy, soft, soggy pizza box. And they used this in their Cafe Max in uh, One Infinite Loop. Fine. It was a nice little story for 10 seconds about two years ago. Yesterday, they released a uh, a video and i think the intention of their video was to show how uh well it was called apple at work the underdogs and and it was sort of demonstrating the benefits of using all apple gear in a really hectic work environment yeah. right but one of the things that you and i were talking about and i think some other people have noticed is is that it also demonstrated what overwork looks like yep so the the plot of this thing was this this underdog team uh, rag team team trying to to pitch a product, and they got a meeting with the uh, the the person they were trying to get the meeting with, who was otherwise unattainable, because the one of the underdog team was rear ended by this person, and and said, "What can I give you?" And well, the answer is, "Give me a meeting." Right. So unlikely circumstances, but whatever. It's a video. All led to them going nuts, working long, arduous hours to produce this pizza box. Uh, I, I, had, 
I'm I'm really restraining myself here because like if I start, I, it would just turn into a rant because there's just so much going into this. But let, let's let's take because this is the Apple Insider podcast. Let's take the Apple angle first. I like the way that Apple integrated the Apple products into it, uh, especially the iPad Pro. Um, they showed how you can use the camera to share with people. Um, they showed live updates uh, on... I, I'm not sure what app it was, but essentially they were whiteboarding and ideating and whatever, and then somebody's kid just scribbled all over the thing. and then the, With the Apple Pencil, right? That's right, yeah, yeah on, on one iPad Pro. And then the other group were looking at the document, and all of a sudden there was scribbles, and they were like, wait, what's going on? So I like that. I like the actors. I think they did a great job. I think in terms of... Um, production quality and everything else all of that was really well done i'm entirely on board with it like you i don't like the fact that it romanticizes overworking uh it's super troubling to anybody who has respect for a person's time and health and effort right because first of all it starts off with this embedded hierarchy which you're not supposed to question uh there's the boss figure and her time is somehow more valuable than that of the four people who are slaving away on this project. Um, and it's like, okay, we just need to stop right there, right? The, there's five people in that, and we're treating one as if she's literally superior, as opposed to just superior in an organizational chart, right? And that's not that's mm-hmm. not cool. Um, I don't like endorsing that. I don't like the kind of lighthearted tone that is in the video about hey, you know, it's crunch time and we're just going to do this. I mean, crunch is a big issue in the gaming industry um, and everybody who's familiar with it knows that it's something the gaming industry should work to eradicate. And now here's Apple kind of sort of promoting it, putting a nice soundtrack to it and saying, well, we can make crunch time easier with cool Apple products. And we have these sort of of uh, stories that come out of Apple you know, about the the time when they were working on building the first iPhone and how it was crunch time and how they had they had uh, cots set up inside Apple and people slept overnight. Or, or stories like Tesla, where Elon Musk was staying yeah. at the Tesla plant, you know, sleeping in his office because it was crunch time. And and so these stories do do come out. But should we be encouraging that? Should should we be romanticizing it? I mean, the answer is obviously no. I, I recall with Elon Musk as well, when he did an interview with Kara Swisher, he was saying, well, you know, 80-hour weeks, they're tough, but 100-hour weeks, they're really tough. And I'm like, no, an 80-hour week is not tough. 80-hour week is something that you need recovery from if you do it once. I have the feeling that, that Musk did that at PayPal, too, that they had those same kind of 80-hour weeks there when they were starting. And the issue, and this is the other thing, the issue isn't Musk doing those things, okay? He can be, he's an adult, he can be responsible for himself. It's him... Asking his employees to do the same. I mean, there there are real human costs there. Exactly. There are people who have attributed the iPhone launch and, and the build up to that, to, you know, making that product, as what cost them their marriage. There there are people that uh, you know Musk is is no longer married. There are real human costs to putting yourself that much into your work, and and the cost is, you know, maybe your personal life. Yeah, I. And I don't mean to turn this into uh, a Joe Rogan podcast where we just diverge into a whole bunch of other topics, but um, I did come across some research on sleep uh, not too long ago. And it, and it's amazing the difference that eight hours of sleep makes versus seven, six, five, four, and however fewer you get. 
Um, and I notice for myself, I very rarely get full eight hours of sleep a night. And the times that I do, I get up and it's kind of like somebody has drugged me with some happy drug. Like nothing can get mm-hmm. my mood down. I live in the UK. Brexit does not touch me. It does not bother me. I'm like, it's fine. <laughs> it's fine. Those guys know what... Well, they can it's get over it. It's not fine. I promise. It's not fine. <laughs> I mean, I know, but, but that's the point. I can get over it. And like... Yeah. Since I'm touching on politics, I do also wonder what life would be like if the American president would get eight hours of sleep per night. You know, uh, if every national leader would get full eight hours of sleep per night, if they wouldn't do this whole. And this is the other thing we think of, oh, I didn't sleep tonight. I went and worked until 3 a.m. as heroics. It's not heroic because even just a couple of hours of sleep lost a night impairs your judgment. Okay, so you're not being heroic. Yeah, you have a deficit. If you have to, if you are in a decision-making role and you're not getting enough sleep, just sleep and rest. You're screwing up your job. Well, at some point, at some point, you're having a, uh, you're, you're no longer accomplishing that you're being productive. You're just proving that you can stay up. Yeah, and yeah, and and to bring it back, uh, this is why uh, the Apple ad has a problematic undercurrent to it. Even though I hate the word problematic because it doesn't really nail down what you have an issue with, but I think we've laid that out here. I I agree. It seems like there's there's a disrespect for employees. It seems like there's a, a weird uh, power structure that elevates a person as opposed to the position that they're in. It, it, it's it's just uh, really frustrating that, that this sort of is what carries the demonstration of all the different Apple products. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I will say something else. It's a broader cultural thing. Um, because if you recall Christian Bale, when he had that meltdown to uh, the person who was managing the lights on a film set, uh, do, do you remember that incident? I'm just trying to remember, yeah. Christian Bale was shooting a scene and the guy was checking the lights and that's his job, literally doing his job. But I don't know, he crossed uh, Bale's line of sight or something. He got in his way and he just had a freaking meltdown at him. And the thing that is implicit in that is Christian Bale was getting, I don't know, $20 million or whatever for the movie. And the guy is getting a fraction of that. And therefore, Christian Bale is worth however, whatever the multiple of his salary versus the other guy's salary. And that's the problem. Valuing people relative to their salary. The problem is when you say... Jeff Bezos, his net worth is whatever. Well, it's not. You know, he's a human being like us. It's just that, yeah, like I say, it turns into well, a whole Well, I mean, there's, there's, this. this is how we identify people, right? You introduce yourself. Hey, I, you know, I'm, I'm Victor. Well, what do you do? Well, I host a podcast, right? It's, it's, it's not, you know, what we do as a job becomes part of our identities. And that's sort of the way it's been for decades. And, and we could have a discussion, probably not on this podcast, but, but about, um, you know, is that the right way that we culturally should identify ourselves? Well, we we can identify with our jobs. I certainly do. I know that it's a passion for me to review technology. Um, but we don't need to couple our value as human beings to the job. You know, it, it, it isn't the thing that makes you valuable. It isn't the thing that makes you worthwhile. I think, uh, I mean, it's not just me thinking this. Everybody knows that some of the things that we value as people the most are things which are free which are given freely you know it's volunteering if there's a natural disaster helping people out that's not paid for you don't get a salary for that but people think of that as valuable speaking of of uh, volunteering or helping people out and it's not really volunteering but it is certainly helping so the uh, the ecg feature 
right? The electrocardiogram feature for Apple Watch was released finally to countries outside of the US. So Hong Kong and parts of Europe finally got that via software update for Apple Watch Series 4. And already the watch has been credited with detecting signs of atrial fibrillation or AFib in, uh, in a European man. So there was a customer testimonial sent via Twitter to uh, Dr. Michael Speer in uh, Germany's FAS newspaper where Apple Watch and the ECG detected previously undiagnosed condition. You know, the, the unnamed user said they viewed the ECG function as something for hypochondriacs, but decided to try the feature when Apple released WatchOS 5.2 last week. And the customer noted multiple Apple Watch readings displayed signs of AFib, and he hadn't detected it. His regular physicians hadn't detected it. He was skeptical of it, but he asked the recommendation of a doctor friend who said it must be a measurement error. Despite all that skepticism, despite the doctor saying it's a measurement error, um, he visited his regular physician, and a 12-channel ECG was taken, and the physician said the watch is right. So the, the customer now attributes the watch to prolonging his life. Which is a great story, but... One thing that I know about these ECG readings from a friend is that uh, medical professionals have been kind of swamped by people giving them mm -hmm. false positives from their right. Apple Watches. And that, that's, a, that's a bit of an issue as well. So, uh, yes, taking up large amounts of time and, and doctor attention for false positives is, is probably a problem. At the same time, you know, when when something goes undetected, like this person's example, the you know, for for that one person, it's it's definitely valuable. Yeah, absolutely. So there's there's the question is where's the balance there, and and you know maybe Apple needs to tune the devices a little better, or or not just hand wave at. Sure, there'll be a lot of false positives, but for those we catch, it's going to be great. You know, there's 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 probably room for improvement. I would think. I think taking the category as a whole, um, smartwatches. Uh, have have really started to mature. I absolutely agree that the Apple Watch, especially Series 4, is a couple of notches above everything else. But um, there's also companies like Withings, a French company. They got taken over by Nokia, and then Nokia sold them off because it didn't know what to do with them. So now they're Withings again. Nokia sold them back to one of their co-founders. That's right. Uh, but they're doing a really good job of taking... Well, it's basically an analog watch and just adding slivers of smartwatch functionality on top of that. So I'm using the Steel HR Sport, which keeps track of your heart rate, uh, your steps. And like I say, it's basically an analog watch with a little OLED screen in it. And it's super thin. Um, and they're also doing some sort of uh, ECG uh, watch as well. I haven't had the, time, the chance to try that out. I think both what they're doing and what Apple is doing with the Apple Watch it's a good thing. It's definitely a good thing. Um, like you say, I do think they need to strike a balance between serving up too many false positives. And then I don't think they're going to clog up the system. There aren't that many people with, uh, you know, a wearable fitness tracker. Well, or I mean, Apple tracker. would love to have um, that kind of problem, right? They'd love to sell that many, I'm sure. <laughs> well, sure, Apple would. But at the same time, a false positive also yeah. freaks a person out, right? We need to keep that in mind as well. I mean, the... The most ironic thing would be for you to be doing just fine, but you're kind of stressed uh, and you're kind of a, in an at-risk category and then your watch tells you, holy shit, you have a heart issue. And then out of the stress of that, you actually develop a heart issue. Um, I don't even know if that's possible, but it certainly sounds <laughs> but, like but, a problem. <laughs> uh, I, I think I'm just being a bit too uh, fantastical with that one. But, but yeah, I, I feel like the important thing with all of this is to do it in... Uh, 
incremental stages, add that functionality incrementally, and make sure that people are informed about exactly what they're receiving in terms of information. I think the user that you describe who had that positive experience, his level of skepticism is probably the appropriate one where he says, okay, my watch says there's an issue. Uh, it's probably not correct, uh, but I'll go and check it out anyway. I think that's the correct way to go about it. Be skeptical, but still go and check it out. And I think that's really what Apple's uh, advice on the watch is. Now, I haven't seen the alert myself because, well, I don't wear the Apple watch, but uh, it, it, my understanding was that it was a, a we've detected something, consider consulting a medical professional kind of advice. Mm -hmm. So here's a, here's a question that I have. How has Apple's step tracking improved or not improved over the generations? Because I've tested the Apple Watch 1 mm -hmm. and 2, um, and the step tracking was actually one of the weakest aspects of the watch for me. Interesting. Do you do any other sort of fitness with it? No, no. Uh, I am, especially now with the Withings watch that I'm wearing, I've become a real freak about step tracking. Um, so it, it's either walking or running is all that I do. Um, and the Withings watch is extremely precise about it. I think it's the most accurate one that I've tested. Okay. So the the thing that I think about step tracking is that the idea that, that all of these things set a default goal of 10,000 steps is is really funny to me. And it's funny to me because 10,000 steps is a random number that was selected out of thin air with no scientific basis at all. It comes from a pedometer that was distributed in Japan in breakfast cereal in the 60s, mm -hmm. where they decided 10,000 was a good number. I mean, it is very round. They didn't know. They just decided. And, and that number has lived on and traveled the world and become the default number. And so I'm not really concerned with down to the exact step accuracy because that number was invented out of the idea that more is probably healthy and probably not harmful. Sure. So if, you know, if, if 10,000 is the arbitrary goal and I walk 9,000, you know, uh, 9,700, it doesn't matter if I walk 9,752 and it's off by a little bit because the goal is, is am I getting enough in? Well, I believe you're 100% correct in that. And I believe that's what makes um, less than perfect accuracy in the Apple Watch acceptable. I also think that is why Apple has created the circles for filling in activity rather than giving you a complication of your actual steps. I think if Apple was confident in step tracking, it would give you an, a complication where you can see the precise number of steps. Well, when you look at the Apple Health app on the, the iPhone, for example... Yep. Uh, you do get numbers of steps. For example, today it is, uh, well, it's presently coming up on 949, and I have so far walked 280 steps today. Yep. Which is probably about right for me. Um, you know, CES, when we go to CES, I walk 20,000 steps a day, mm -hmm. which is, is what I call getting my exercise in for the year. <laughs> but um, you're, you're right. You know, I don't need that much precision. Well, I, and I, I think... I, as a card-carrying nerd, and this is going to be a segue to our next topic, I do need that precision. Uh, that was a very nice one, yeah. I Listen, it's it's part of what makes technology feel good is the fact that it can do things that I can't. Okay, so I can tell you that yesterday I went out for three walks, okay? My watch mm. can tell you that that amounted to 9,957 steps because I fell asleep 
too early and I couldn't do 10,000. Um, and I think that is cool. See, that's that's really interesting because my step activity yesterday was 2,818 steps in total. Yep. But 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 listen, that, that's also, this is the other thing. If you don't leave the house, actually getting 1,000 steps is kind of a challenge. Well, yesterday was pretty an active day for me. I was doing a lot of stuff. Yeah. So I think step tracking watches, it, precise or not precise, are valuable in just kind of reminding us. <clears throat> they're valuable in reminding us to take that activity and to take that walk uh, just to... Because the given advice, every the advice that everybody gives you is you got to walk for at least 20 minutes a day. You know, you got to do some physical activity for at least 20 minutes. You got to get your heart rate up a little exactly. bit. Exactly. You got to do something. Exactly. And I think these things help do that. What I like about the Apple Watch is, is that it's not just focused solely on step counting, for example. It's also got tons of other activities in it. And it's able to recognize what kind of activity you're doing. So you don't have to manually say all the time, okay, now I'm going for a swim. Now start the activity. It sort of understands the difference between these things and understands what is important in the difference between these things. You know, for swimming, for example, it understands uh, laps. It understands, you know, the the a little bit about the different strokes as you're doing them kind of thing. It's it's much more competent than simply just being an accelerometer and saying, okay, we got movement. Yeah, and, and I will say that's uh, one of the evolutions that is cool. Um, I also think, though, going back to an Apple ad with the... I think it was called the Better You advert for the Apple Watch, uh, where one person is constantly, well, it's essentially a clone of him shows up who does better and who just kind of constantly keeps ramping it up. So one of them takes a walk, the other one starts jogging, the other one starts running, the other one is like swimming in the ocean. Um, And I think that's the other problem with uh, fitness trackers and wearables is... If you get hooked on this constant increase and constant growth, that's good in one respect, but you also need to get to a sustainable level of exercise. And these devices tend to nudge you to keep going, keep pushing. Whereas I feel like the necessary step that they need to take in the future is to keep you sustaining whatever exercise you're doing. Mm-hmm. You know, there's there's a real problem with wearables where in the past... People would buy a Fitbit, they'd wear it for three months, they'd put it in a drawer. Yep. You know, they, it would come time to charge it again, and instead of charging it and putting it back on, they would put it on the charger and then forget about it. And and that was sort of the life cycle of these things is that people would buy them, try them for three months and forget about them. And, and one of the problems that Apple has and, and Withings has as well is how do you make it sticky? Withings takes away the charging part of it so you never take it off because their battery lasts for a year at a time, basically. You know, they're using a, a coin cell 2032 or 2025 battery. With with Apple, they have two-day battery life, more or less. And so you need to charge it nightly or charge it during the day at some point, and then, you know, wear it at night if you're going to do sleep tracking, whatever you need to do. It's um, It's an opportunity to not put it on again. And so they have to figure out how do they encourage you to keep going. Well, Withings does gamification, and I think it does it very well. It gives you little achievement badges. So I got some for 2,000, 4,000, 6,000, 8,000, 10,000, 20, 30, and 40,000 steps per day. Uh, there's a 50,000 steps per yeah, day Apple badge. Watch gives those kinds of badges too. There's one for 50,000 steps, and I have no idea how I'm going to achieve that. I would need to run half a marathon or something. Well, more than half a marathon. Yeah, one of those... One of these ones, and I forget which fitness tracker it was at this point, uh, used to give me badges 
based on how much I'd walked and assigned geographical locations to them. Like, you have now walked all the way around Lake Titicaca or something Same. like that. That's the I'm winnings like, app. This is the other thing. No, that's the one. Okay, yeah. I've had too many of these things to remember exactly. Well, <laughs> that's the uh, product this reviewer's is the, curse, this is right? This that does the sustaining because at the moment I am on something like a thousand kilometers and then there's mm-hmm. – it hides the next badge. So you don't know what geographic location you're going to have circumnavigated at the next badge. And you're curious. And it's like, oh, I just need another 20, 13 kilometers, 10, 5, whatever. And then you get the next badge. So so that's a little teaser to get you, you know, to keep walking, keep moving. Yeah. Currently, I only use Withings as the uh, as the weight scale. Yeah. No, it, well, and this I have is the, the, funny thing. the weight and, scale tied into we'll, my we'll finish off health. on the health gadgets here. But this is the funny thing. I started off with the smart scales, first using them as dumb scales, and then I was like, okay, fine, I'll use the app for the scales. And once I started using the app, it started tracking my steps via my phone without me wanting it to. And once I started getting a number on my steps, I was like, oh, well, screw this, I'm going to get better numbers. So I started walking more. (laughs) And once I started walking more, I was like, oh, man, I don't go everywhere with my phone. So now it's like... And I also can't really joke with my phone as comfortably as with a watch. So then I got the watch, and now I'm fully hooked in, hooked in. Right. So you were you were easily uh, you were you were easily manipulated into doing that. Whereas I have so far resisted the manipulation. Oh. I, I don't wear the Apple Watch. I wear a traditional mechanical watch. Um, I, I looked at my steps only because we were talking about it. And I step on the scale and it records the weight and it sends me notifications saying, good job. If you just keep stepping on your weight, you'll eventually get to your target. No, I won't. I know better. I know that my I know exactly where my weight is based on this, and it's not changing one bit just by stepping on the scale. <laughs> what mechanical watch do you wear? Um, I have a few different ones. Uh, today, it's one that is uh, made by NTH, uh, a small micro brand company. It's uh, and it's got a, a custom gold dial, a gilt dial they call it, where they uh, gold plate the dial plate and then print on top of that so that you get gold shining through it. It's very pretty in the light. Ooh. Because that's, that's another curiosity for me is I, I care about watches as well. And I'm curious about what mechanical watch will get me to basically commit my wrist to it rather than a fitness tracker. Um, well, we should talk about this on the other podcast that I do, the Hour Time Show, as part of wristwatchreview.com. Wow. Okay. I didn't know that even existed. <laughs> but good plug. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but yes. Uh, well, yeah, we'll, we'll talk about that after we finish just recording very quickly, this. Well, you said you were a card-carrying geek, so we got to talk about what card are you going to carry to show that you're a geek. Well, if I am somebody who has a lot of Apple gear, the card that I would love to use where show off is the Apple card, the new credit card. So everybody who listens to this podcast so, knows that the Apple card exists. It Apple's, It's Apple's new credit card. It's really... Trying to digitalize the credit card and turn it into Apple Pay, but because not everywhere supports contactless payments in that fashion, Apple has issued a titanium, minimalist, all-white, handsome, beautiful card. Titanium? Yes. And while a lot of my colleagues have been like, well, are these Apple perks, are the other credit card perks good? Are the cashback variations desirable how do they compete against chase and whatever else i've looked at it the way that patrick bateman from american psycho looked at his rival's business card it's an object of desire okay uh and to me i also feel like it's literally a physical membership card to the apple club you know this there's a whole bunch of people who have 
An emotional affinity with Apple as a brand, and that's because of the first experiences that they might have had with the pro- with the company's products. Um, that's because they might have had a laptop, you know, that lasted them seven or eight years without a problem. Speaking for myself, I had a 2011 iMac, which I kept until December last year when Apple stopped supporting it with the latest version of macOS. So I just had to upgrade away from it, but it never gave me an issue. Um, so people build that, build up that affinity and then having a physical totem to show for that and it being so bloody beautiful, uh, to me, is a genius idea. I just think as soon as Apple makes these available, they're going to be just everywhere. So here, here's my thought. I think that it's a beautiful card. I think that the app features are incredible. The idea of, of an app being able to show you and help guide you to good personal finance habits has a lot of promise for me. Uh, I'm not concerned about the benefits and how they stack up with other cards because this is one of those things that I think is really opaque unless you're a credit card nerd. And there are credit card nerds out there. I mean, there are whole websites dedicated to optimizing which card has which benefits. And there are people that I know, I know some personally who carry six cards and use each one at different stores specifically for the different awards that they'll get. But most people can't handle that. Most people can't handle having those different numbers of cards to take advantage of specific rewards and and all of that. It's just a lot to mess with. And so having one card that gives you one very easily to explain benefit, I think, makes a difference. No, absolutely. I, I feel like the people who do, as you say, uh, run five or six cards at a time. Uh, there's also the churners who churn from one credit card to the other one as soon as the first card's introductory bonus expires so they pick up the next car's introductory bonus it's and they just do a balance transfer over yeah it's just too much work um here in the uk i don't know how popular these things are in the us uh there are cashback websites which means that you go via the website to amazon or to a service provider and because you went via the website you got an extra percentage of cashback given back to you yeah uh rakuten does something like that called ebates and there are a few others like it you you, uh, you install a browser extension, and when you're on that site, you click on the browser extension, and it goes ahead and activates the the discount for you. Or um, or join Honey is one that will do that kind of thing, but apply coupon codes. Okay, well, the, the, I think Honey I've heard about, and those are much more convenient than the thing I'm talking about. This is you have to go to a specific website, browse all the offers through it, and then pick something that you like, and then click on that to lead you to the service provider, and then you have to wait for like weeks and months until you get that cash back brought back to you. I got into that a few years ago, and the stress of doing that nonsense was absolutely not worth it. Like however much money I saved, I lost in terms of just stressing out and wasting my own time trying to pursue these things. So absolutely, the thing that you say is spot on. Apple encouraging better financial habits and doing it in a straightforward fashion that everybody can keep track of is totally going in the right direction. And, you know, you were mentioning the the time gap between getting your credit back. And with Apple, they promise that it will be daily. Right. And, I mean, that speaks for itself. In a, in a way, you know, people have been commenting that, that the Apple Card and Apple Pay feel like a way away from what Apple used to be. That, that there's sort of a divergence because... You know, uh, your own uh, your own friend over at the Virgin Eli said, "Apple Pay and Apple Pay Card are not at the center of liberal arts and technology." Was I think his comment on Twitter, and um, he's correct in that. At the same time, where Apple lives best is when Apple can explain their entire product 
in 20 seconds. Yeah. And you can absolutely explain Apple Pay card in 20 seconds. You can. You can. Um, it's my job to take longer than 20 seconds and fill it out with like well, yes, but I mean, a thousand words of forwarding yeah. about the design of it. But yeah, no, I, I'm on board with you. R- right. You know, the, 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 remember, remember when iTunes started renting videos, right? And at the time, other people that were doing it were people like Voodoo. And Voodoo's pitch was you can rent videos from all over using our store and they can be in high def and some of them will cost a dollar and some of them will cost five dollars and some of them will cost fourteen dollars and some of them will be able to rent for a month and some of them will be rent for 28 hours and some of them will be up to 48 hours 24 hours 48 hours right and there were all these variations and it was hard to explain and apple's was you can rent a movie it will cost this amount and once you start viewing it you can view it for this length your rental will last for the month it was a very simple sentence that you could explain everything. There were no complications and no exceptions or any of that. And the same is true of Apple Card. It's a card. It has no international fees. It has no punitive fees. It has typical APR, it ha- which they called low fees, but I'm kind of taking issue with that. Yeah. It has uh, daily cash back, and the benefits are 1%, 2%, 3%. And that's an Apple kind of that's an Apple kind of explanation, isn't it? It is. It is. Um, as an Android user, the first thing I thought was, if you're going to give me two percent back on all my Google Pay purchases, I will not buy anything without Google Pay. Okay, because that's my most common way of spending money at the moment. In any case, so I was immediately envious of the two percent on purchases with Apple Pay. Uh, I do want Google to match that. Or I want Apple to put a better camera in the iPhone so I can use an iPhone. <laughs> hint, hint. Um, so, so that's that. But on the other hand, where Neil I was poking fun at Apple about liberal arts and technology, I think, um, I mean, I maybe am a bit too cynical, but I think we're all kind of conscious that Apple isn't that anymore. Apple isn't an idealistic company. Uh, it isn't this small-time outfit which uh, sacrifices profits for the sake of just better i i don't think apple has ever really sacrificed profits for the sake of the, the end user there i mean yeah. they, they've always taken a healthy margin <laughs> exactly um i mean i i go into the apple store here in london and the accessories that apple sells i mean how can you justify for example uh you have the imac keyboard magic keyboard and magic trackpad and then you have the iMac Pro variant, which is dark, but costs, I don't know, what is it, uh, 20 or 30% more, right? And it's like... For the accessories. Yeah, for the accessories, for the keyboard and the Magic Trackpad. And, it, and it's literally, the difference is that one is white and the other one is dark to match the iMac Pro. It's still a keyboard, yeah. it's still a Magic Trackpad, but just the price got cranked up. Uh, yep. Then you have things, and this, this isn't so much about margins anymore, but we, we were just talking about clarity of presentation. Can we please talk about Apple's product naming for a second? Because go on. There's Apple Pencil. I'm not sure where it's going, but go on. <laughs> there's Apple Pencil, and then there's Apple Pencil. And Apple Pencil is different from Apple Pencil, but both are called Apple Pencil. Right, and and some of us will colloquially call the second one Apple Pencil too. Why is right? that so hard for Apple to do? I think here's what happened: is that they they probably intended originally to have just one of them and cancel the first one. Yeah. And they want to avoid getting into this cycle of, you know, they've been through this cycle before, right? iPad, iPad 2, iPad 3, iPad Air, iPad Air 2. You know, they they definitely want to avoid the yearly naming, right? They don't want to be 
Windows 95, Windows 98, Windows Millennium, sure. Windows 2003, Nobody wants to be right? Windows Millennium. No, no one wants to be Windows Millennium. And so trying to name and indicate versions is difficult. Well, still, I think their idealistic goal is to name this is the penultimate expression of what this product is at this time. It is, it is an iMac. It's not an iMac 2. It's not an iMac 3. It's an iMac. And, and yeah, there's an exception between iMac and iMac Pro, but otherwise they were just pretty much all iMacs. Sure. And pencil, the first one was their expression of what a pencil could be at that time. The second one is their best expression of what the pencil should be at this time. But unfortunately, you have to keep the old one hanging around because they can't put the charge coil in the cheaper devices without breaking the price structure. Right. Another point. Um the device so, that that's that's one of those compromises, and the problem is that there are compromises in product. No matter what you do, you have to compromise on cost, or you have to compromise on quality, or you have to compromise uh, somewhere. And and here it was product naming that took it. Okay, the device whose name is written, and I'm just gonna have to spell it: iPhone XS. How do you pronounce that? I pronounce that iPhone XS. I know I'm the only one left. <sighs> I still do. Okay, well, because you ju- you just laid out a really uh, understandable I know, point I know. about compromising, and I am with you. Yeah, but there is no reason for this. I I don't get upset. It doesn't bother me if someone says they have the XS or the XS Max or the XR. I don't care. It's fine. I know what product we're talking about. When when I think of it, I think of uh, iPhone XS. I, I I carry a XR. My XR is personal. It's right here, and I know I know that it's an XR to people. Okay. Well, those people I, just read. Okay, they—they're not doing anything special. They're not—they're not modifying. They're taking it off the page and they're saying, "This is what my eye sees." I am not going to break from um, the Latin alphabet to break into Roman numerals and then come back to regular numerals when there's still iPhone eights going on sale. And you know, when I look at something like that, I do. I, well, or or if you really want to, if you want to have fun. Why is OS X still OS X where, when, when we're on um, 18 years of OS X? Well, it's 10.14 Or, or now. OS X, if we're reading literal, right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I used to read OS X for, I don't know, years and years. Um, at this point, I just write it. I, I don't read it. Well, in fact, it's macOS, so it's, it's, all, it's all kind of academic. Yeah, they got over it. It's macOS yeah, now. Yeah, that's right. But when I see something like the iPhone XS naming, I just feel like, is Apple just kind of trolling us here is that waiting for us to really react and then it can be like guys we're kidding of course not like it just doesn't I, compute you know, for me I, I think i think it comes down to to phil schiller saying xr sounds really cool like a car sure so call it xr okay okay phil if you like cars i guess cool <laughs> honestly i i personally have no problem with iphone xs and iphone xr those are fine names that's perfectly fine by me well, I, I'm okay with it too. It doesn't bother me. I just I still read it with the Roman numeral, and it's out of habit now to doing this too long. I think. So on, on that topic, then, since uncharacteristically for April now, I haven't heard too many rumors about the next iPhone. Have you heard anything relating to the iPhone's camera? Well, I think you've probably seen the same rumors that we have. There's been the three lens rumor that has a, a flash. No, actually, I'm mistaken. It's just the three cam, three lens rumor arranged in a square with the the flash as one of the points of the square. You've seen that one, right? Um, there there have been a few different rumors. They're early at this point. It's it's one of those things where we've seen the early indications, but uh, but but not enough smoke to really tell yet. Um, 
the the thing that we had a while ago was a Ming Chi Kuo note. Uh, he's an analyst, of course, and he was talking about what we would see in terms of screen size and OLED and, and enclosure change. And there were a few tweaks, a few changes, but I think it's probably going to be, if he's right, another sort of incremental release with the camera possibly seeing a change, which I know is just what you were hoping for. Yeah, yeah. I Again, I, I just feel like so much of the iPhone's lead. Oh, oh! I remember. There were also going to be some tweaks to the the front facing camera, which has the true depth sensor. You know, some changes to how the the facial recognition is done to make it more accurate, especially in low light and off axis conditions. So the interesting thing for me with the Huawei phone that I'm reviewing right now, the P30 Pro, and the one before it, the Mate 20 Pro, the Mate 20 Pro had the exact same square arrangement of lenses with three lenses, and then the flash being the fourth part of that arrangement. And it's not beyond the realm of possibility that Huawei might have heard rumors or spies might have, you know, penetrated into Apple's network of suppliers or whatever and seen some layouts of what Apple was planning and just preempted that and copied it with the Mate 20 Pro. That's not beyond the realm of possibility. If you remember when Apple first introduced um, Force Touch in the iPhone, it was preempted by a Huawei phone by about a month. And Huawei had absolutely no idea what to do with it. It was literally, Apple is doing this. We need to put it in our phone screen. <laughs> we're going to do it too. <laughs> yes. We don't know what we're going to do with it. And they demonstrated it by weighing an orange on the phone screen. And that, that was literally as much as happened with that. It was uh, sort of a limited edition. Maybe a few people bought one. Huawei never touched the technology again. Yeah. So in, the, in years past, long, long ago in Apple's history, when... When something seemed plausible, like it was going to happen, they would go the other direction. You know, if a rumor came out and said, this is what they're going to announce and they're going to do it like this, they would do it the opposite. And and this has happened with the early Mac Mini where someone said the graphics adapter was going to be an ATI part. And so they went to the competitor part. You know, they went to the uh, the NVIDIA part at the time. They changed everything, stopped everything, changed the NVIDIA part instead. Or... Um, Another example was the iPod Touch third generation, which was supposed to have a camera, said all the rumors. And when it launched, it had no camera. And if you took the cover off the back, there was an empty hole right where a camera could have gone. I remember that. Kind of thing. So, you know, Apple, old Apple used to get offended at these rumors and change out of spite almost was the impression that, that they sort of gave. In At this time, you know, the phones that they're developing, they pretty much have to decide and lock down what it is they're going to make two years in advance. That's right. And so they don't have that flexibility to to change something up if someone else decides to to announce it before them. And so the rumors in a way become slightly more reliable. Now they're they're not entirely reliable because we get weird things like where is the iPhone SE2, for example. You know, there was a rumor that said we'd get an SE2. Well, is the is the 10R the SE2? It sure doesn't feel like one. It feels like a competent phone on its own. I don't know. And it certainly doesn't feel like an SE2 in terms of size. You know, it's bigger than the the 10s. Sure. So it's it's question mark. But whatever Apple's going to do, they've pretty much already decided what that's going to be. That's right, and I think that's fair enough. Um, it's a reflection of a more competitive market, and I think we should all be happy about that. It shows that Apple can't set its own rules in terms of manufacturing and production and so on and so on. Um, and you know, me I mean there are facts of lives, right? Production is a fact of life and production takes time to ramp up and produce and and of course they're trying to secure 
their production lines so that leaks don't happen. But but I mean, it's a fact of life. This is what it takes to produce a part. That's right. And I will say, coming back to the article that I've written today, part of my motivation with these things is I know that The Verge is read by these companies. And I want to light a fire under their ass sometimes, you know? Um <laughs> You know, when I was talking to uh, to car stereo companies, I was talking to aftermarket car stereo companies, and I, I said to them at CES, you know, what does it take to get you guys to fix your interface? What is the best way to to try and get you to to do something to make it better? And they said, write an article. Don't don't tell us here at CES. Write an article. Make it public. Yeah, yeah. I wrote an article about Chrome being a battery life drain uh, on the MacBook. Uh, this was a few years ago, and I know that that circulated inside Google and people took that seriously. Um, <clears throat> and in the case of Apple, if there is any company besides Google that I trust to do computational photography in a way that just kind of blows us all away, it's Apple, right? I'm Honestly, I am shocked that Huawei yeah. is getting this massive a lead in terms of its engineering and in terms of its uh, capabilities when it has none of the pedigree that companies like Apple do. So, I mean, I'm shocked and I'm happy about but, Huawei, but I, mean, but I want to see Apple match and I'll do that. Well, so Huawei is an interesting one because in the US, Huawei has, uh, let's say, some problems. Yeah, a few. And and by that, I th- yeah, well, uh, first of all, US government problems for one, right? The, uh, the, the CTO and the um, – or CFO and uh, – the uh, the order to try and get her from Canada. I'm forgetting the proper term. It escapes me at the moment. But um, it's a scary term. It's extradition. To, to, that's the one. Oh my goodness! It escape. I you know you ever have one of those moments where the word is on the tip of your tongue and it's just gone. Oh, it's it extradition. Yes. Yeah. So so that's a problem. Uh, certainly, Congress looking into Huawei and the relationship with the Chinese government and accusing them of surveillance is is a problem for Huawei. And and also because of all of those things, the difficulty that they have getting into retailers. Huawei is not carried in any of our main cell phone carrier stores. I, I wouldn't know where to tell you to purchase one if you if I wanted to. I wouldn't advise anybody in the US buys a Huawei device because the level of support is going to be corresponding to the level of availability. Yeah. But that's a chicken and egg kind of problem almost. No, it absolutely is. And it's gonna be an interesting thing because what I'm seeing right now happening is China is more or less taking over Europe and kind of isolating the US as far as the smartphone market is concerned. Uh, 2018 was a really big year for Chinese companies in Europe. Huawei uh, was already one of the leading companies and it just grew. Uh, Xiaomi went from a couple of markets to covering most of Western Europe and again grew in major ways. Um, Oppo and Vivo, who are the other companies in the top five smartphone vendors in the world, mostly because of their Chinese sales, now have a much bigger presence in Europe. Oppo recently launched in the UK for the first time, I think at the start of this year. You have OnePlus already established. And these companies are doing really aggressive new designs. Um, They're doing like five different types of pop-up cameras to completely get rid of any sort of notches on the screen. Huawei Mm -hmm. is doing this crazy stuff with its night mode, which I can't even explain anymore because it's just unbelievable. But but wait a minute. So we were talking about camera apps and usability at the front of this. And I remember reading an article at some point about how a lot of their camera apps were basically copies of the iPhone camera yeah, app. That's that's a fact. Okay. <laughs> it is. Uh, I mean, they're not uh, as good. They have a few too many options. 
but the usability well here's the thing with the Huawei P30 Pro the default camera is amazing by itself so all of the extra fluff that they put in there you can just completely ignore right so uh you launch the camera you take a photo and you're done okay so they have a AI mode, which I don't touch because it doesn't really help photos that much. Uh, they have a night mode, a dedicated night mode, which takes uh, three or four seconds to do an exposure, but their quarter of a second exposure with the default camera is just as good. And they even have a pro mode, which again is like just a litany of settings and it's just too many controls. It's it's all of your white balance and your exposure and yeah, and there, there are too many else, controls, right? too many toggles, too many things which are just not worth the investment of time uh, for the incremental improvement of image quality that you might get. Uh, they do let you shoot in RAW uh, by default in the camera. Um, can you do that with the iPhone camera? Shoot RAW by default. Well, it shoots high. H E I C is the format that I, I see it doing now, but. I end up using an app called Halide. That's the one that I use as well. This is why I forget about the default iPhone camera because I know yeah. uh, in Halide, I think it's Halide, uh, but we can call it Halide. Uh, uh, no, no, Halide is probably appropriate. This is what happens is when you only read something and haven't heard it pronounced, That's right. you pronounce it wrong. When you learn it by reading, you pronounce it incorrectly. Well, I use that for raw, raw photos with the iPhone. I use Halide, which is very yeah. good. Uh, have you ever used Filmic? I haven't. What, what does it do? So Filmic is one of these applications where I, it was too hard for me to understand at, with, without spending lots of time with its manual. But it's the one that, uh, that, that filmmakers have been using with the iPhone and an accompanying anamorphic lens to be able to shoot actual movies. What's the advantage uh, with the app there? Does it give you a more cinematic quality? Does it do a different frame rate? Uh, why would you use that app? Well, I mean that that app gives you all the control that you'd need for for doing proper filming, and it handles doing it with that lens. They're using the Moondog Labs lens for it, and the um, and and for whatever reason, Filmic is is the app that is the one that that. Uh, oh gosh, what's the name of the filmmaker? I'm blanking on it now. Um, uh, the fellow who shot. Um, Oh my gosh, there have been a few of them. Um, Steven Soderbergh's films, right? He shot a film on the iPhone 5S, and then he shot one on the iPhone 7. Uh, he shot, um, he's been shooting on the iPhone 8, and he's been using Filmic almost exclusively now. Wow. Well, you know, talking to you, this is another reason why I'm at least a little bit frustrated the iPhone isn't matching the Google Pixel and the Huawei P30 uh, for its camera quality, which is that iOS gets all the best apps, and that's still the case. So we just talked about Filmic and Halide. We have none of those on Android. We have none of these third-party apps that just completely and irrevocably upgrade the shooting experience or even the post-processing experience. Nothing's perfect. That's why they keep making more products, I guess. Yep. That also makes it frustrating because... yeah. If you actually have to choose between an iPhone and an Android device, I know most people don't have to anymore because you kind of settled into one ecosystem or the other, the choice is still a very difficult one. Well, I mean, obviously I and most of my listeners have chosen to stick with an iPhone, but I think you're right that, that you know, we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that there are develops made on both sides. And it's, it's, um, it's like you say, frustrating that we don't always get to take advantage of all of them. But then if we did, you and I really wouldn't have a job, right? This is... This is another thing. I do a lot of headphone reviews 
And I can tell you that my worst nightmare is to find a pair that is just about perfect and then I don't want to listen to anything else because that ruins my job. Yeah. So let me ask you, you what is the best cheap earbud? Um, I really like the OnePlus uh, USB-C bullets because those are ones that I can use with my Android phone, plug them into my laptop. Uh, they're really effortless, really lightweight, and they're something like $20. Nice. Not bad for a, for a USB-C headphone. Yeah, I, I was really impressed for a long time. The USB-C options were basically $150 for the Libertone option. And Essential did a $50 pair, which wasn't particularly good. But now we have um, those ones from OnePlus. There's a Danish company called III. They do a $45 pair of USB-C buds. They're very good. And, oh, there is something that bests them, which is uh, TCL, the TV maker, recently got into doing headphones as well. It does one with a standard analog connector, 3.5 millimeters. The the 3.5, yeah. Yeah. Uh, They're called the TCL Social, which is spelled S-O-C-L, 300. And they cost $15. And the really impressive thing about them is the quality of their microphone. So they're just a a super pair because they're kind of feather light. You can just... uh, you You know the little pocket that you have... That was ostensibly for coins in your jeans on the right side. Sure. You can stick yeah. them into there. They're that tiny, right? So they're tiny, they're wow. cheap, and they have a great mic. So it's a pair of office earphones. I think those are amazing. Excellent. Dare I ask, what do you think of the uh, AirPods 2? Oh, I love them. I, I love the original AirPods, uh, which was which was a big conversion how, how for me, the, I have to admit. How do the new ones compare? Uh, they're the same. They're practically the same product. <laughs> They're the same product with wireless charging, which is like you, you upgraded one important aspect, so well done. And there's not much else to say beyond that. But I will say I had a big conversion with the AirPods, the original ones. I um, I was one of the vocal critics of them when they were released. I thought they looked like uh, Bluetooth uh, dongles from the past. Uh, I was not impressed with the hockey sticks coming out of the ears. I was not impressed with the fact that each one of them cost 70 whatever dollars and you could lose it so easily on the underground. I was not impressed by the fact that they were basically like AirPods, which never really fit me very well. But once I got to use the AirPods, uh, I realized I was damn wrong. Um, The AirPods never fit me, in part because the cables kind of tugged at them and they tugged them out of my ear. Um, whereas the AirPods just sit there and they sit perfectly. So I could run with them. I could exercise with them. They're great. They sit in place. And as you're, as everybody I'm sure will be aware who's used them, you can just keep them in your ears and you hear everything around you just fine. And also nobody talks about this much, but the AirPods sound quality is great. Okay. It's not hi-fi. You're not going to get, you know, earth shaking bass or anything like that, but it's really coherent and when there's emotion in the music, they convey it really well. So I think Apple has done an amazing job with them. And I have no issue with the fact that the sound quality and the physical design haven't changed. I think there was very little that you could improve given how tiny they are. Um, so Apple has done the thing that everybody probably wanted, given them wireless charging. And I think yeah, I think that the other benefit they added was the, the ability to use Hey Siri without having to... Uh, tap to prompt it, for example, Yeah, that that making the voice assistant be something that you interact more naturally with was a big win. 
Now, our, our one of our writers, William Gallagher, who is normally on this podcast, um, contends that there is a sound difference. But I think that's one of the things that's very personal is you sort of A-B them and you sort of think, am I hearing a difference? Am I not? Or is there a marked difference? It, it can be difficult to tell. But sure. uh, he's convinced that he is hearing a difference. Well, this is a question for me as well. How much use do you get out of Siri? You know, I I use Siri quite a lot. Um I don't use it all the time, but I, I do use it when I'm in the car because I use CarPlay. And so I use Siri to interact with messages that come in while I'm in the car driving. Um, I use it to schedule appointments and reminders and to add events to my calendar. I use it to dial when I'm too lazy to look up a contact because I really don't like looking up contacts through a long list of contacts or having to search when I can just say the name. Um I, I, there are things that I don't use it for, but, but those are the kinds of things that I do use it for. And just to also build, build on that, do you use almost exclusively Apple products or do you mix in some Android and Windows devices? Uh, my Android device is a, a Nexus 6P, That's a which classic. was made by Huawei. Yep. I mean, it's a good device. It runs Android 8. I have not yet hacked it to flash 9 onto it, but it, it can run Pi if I want it to. Um, I, I, there's something very nice to me about having a device that is Android as it was meant to be, as opposed to Android from someone's ROM. Yep. You know, I, I want to, if I'm testing something, I want to use it the way that Google distributed it as opposed to whatever someone cobbled together from AOSP. Right. And what would you say, um, is the perspective, the Apple insider's perspective on the competition from the Android side of things. I've just written an article about that, saying that Android has a lead on the camera front, but I'm curious, um, as somebody ensconced in the Apple ecosystem, which I don't say um, derisively, you know, it's it's a good place to be ensconced in. How, how do you look on the Android side of things? I mean, speaking for myself, I, I, I don't really want to speak for the Apple Insider point of view, because the thing is that someone... You know, we, we have editorials that we publish on the site, and, and some of them are very much anti-Android. And they're not entirely wrong, but I think there are things to learn from them. And I think it's important to remember that some of the people who worked on the first iPhones did work on Android as well. That that we've seen this cross-pollination between the two as they they try and catch up to each other. And, you know, you could say that about the multitasking and how some of that came from WebOS, for example. Well, a lot of the WebOS people went to work on Android when HP failed to, to support them properly. That's right. So these ideas sort of all circulate and each one plays catch up with each other. There are some things that I like very much about how Android handles notifications that Apple has yet to match in some of them. And there are other things that I prefer about Apple. And, you know, I... Where it falls for me is is one of the things that I really value from Apple is that I can take an Apple device and I can restore it to a known cryptographically good state, to a known cryptographically safe state by putting it in DFU mode and flashing it with the firmware directly from Apple. And, and with Android, if I have to unlock a bootloader to do that, then it feels like to me it's it's potentially vulnerable. It's not back to a cryptographically known good state, even if I'm downloading the firmware for it directly from from Google, for example. So there, there's some security value to that that I get. With with Apple, I know that a device is going to be supported by iOS for anywhere from, from you know, four years or more now. And do, do you think that's um, that's a really important aspect of it, the peace of mind, especially when you're spending larger sums of money on technology? I, I think security and support matter. You know, my, my dad bought a... Um, 
uh, a Motorola e-device. And at the time, Motorola and, and, and Lenovo, who owned them after having bought them from Google, said, we're going to keep supporting this. This is going to keep getting updates. And they broke that promise almost immediately. Yeah. You know, his, his thing is stuck on Lollipop. And I felt bad because I'd recommended it based on that promise. Well, it should it should be noted the Motorola E is a good phone in any case. And it's such a basic phone that it probably doesn't need an upgrade. But I take your point. <clears throat> Something else I should mention, Honor, <clears throat> which is one of the Android brands, it's Huawei's budget brand, so to speak. They had a yeah. tagline. Yeah, I have the 6X from them. Honor have the tagline, be brave. And I've spoken to them and they've t- they asked me, how do you perceive our brand? And I said to them, the tagline of be brave is exactly the opposite of what I want from my smartphone. <laughs> I do not want my smartphone to require courage from me to use it, right? I want my smartphone to be something that I get because I am risk averse. Because let's face it, I am risk averse when I'm spending hundreds of dollars. In some cases, more than a thousand, right? And right. to your point, I do feel like Apple is still the place. Um, I have had the FlexGate issue with my MacBook Pro, but uh, I already had AppleCare and I brought it in. They fixed it. I, I told them it's my work machine, so they hurried the repair. And you don't get that with uh, Windows manufacturers. Um, they'll probably get you to send your laptop in and it will be weeks and weeks. And you just don't get that reassurance. So I'm, I mean, that was the thing with the Motorola was that it had a problem and my dad called them up and they said, yeah, we know that problem. Go ahead and send it in. It'll be about three weeks. And he said, okay, so you're going to send me a phone in the meantime. We'll cross ship. And they said, oh, no, no, no. If you want to pay cross shipping, you have to pay for the shipping for that and give us a credit card number that we can hold in the meantime. And he said, but but there's an Apple store within a less than a mile from me. I can just go down there and they'll, you know, if I had an iPhone, they'd trade it in right away. Why are you treating me like this? And they had no concept of of supporting the customer if you needed your phone. You know, you were just supposed to live without your phone for a couple of weeks. Right. And I, I think that's important. I think um, especially as smartphones have very much inched towards and passed the $1,000 mark, um, the experience uh, beyond the initial purchase has to be of a higher priority. And I would say putting myself outside the Android ecosystem and looking in, I would say that's one of the issues um, – where companies have to make a lot of progress um, and they have to do a lot to convince people that they can be trusted in the same way that iPhone owners trust Apple right now. And I think that's possible. I don't think it's beyond the realm of possibility. It just takes investment. It takes a bit of time um, to establish that trust. At the same time, I think Apple needs to catch up on the technical side of things because the difference between the iPhone X and the iPhone XS is tiny. Um as far as I see it, I can't even remember the specifics of how they're different. So, yeah, I, I I do feel like it's nice. The tension between them is nice because Apple has advantages. Its Android rivals have advantages. Um, and, and they're pushing each other forward. I think that's good. Well, I've taken a lot of your time this morning. I am so glad you were able to join us. This has been a fun conversation. Where can people find you on the Internet? Uh, well, I write for TheVerge.com, so TheVerge.com, and uh, I can be found tweeting on a daily basis because I'm addicted uh, at Flat Sabbath. I'm Victor. I'm at VMarks on Twitter. You can find me at AppleInsider.com or WristwatchReview.com. This has been our show. We will be back next week. Thank you so much for joining us, everyone. 